Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Folks, it is the great game with Matthew Arad, the man, the myth, the legend himself. You can find Matthew over at his Substack right there. The links are in the description box, as well as Canadian Patriot dot was it dot com dot org dot org. I keep messing this up. The Canadian Patriot dot org and the Rising Tide Foundation dot net. Go there. It is a plethora. It is the, it is the modern library of Alexandria for all things geostrategic. And geopolitical. And with that being said, Matthew, what's up, buddy? How are you? Oh, not much. There's a lot going on. Lots to talk about. Ooh, man, I am thankful to God that the free world still exists, though it is not in the demented, dying, decrepit West. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a real breath of flesh, fresh air. And I, I, you know, when I texted you guys last night, I, I was I was just telling you guys I was feeling a little bit blue because I was just like trying to think, what, what am I going to talk about today? And, you know, I was going through the news and just processing and processing all of the insane shit. And I was getting, it's getting me down a bit. And then I listened to, to Putin's speech at the Valdai Club, um, the one that's caused a lot of controversy on a variety of reasons. And I, that just shot me to the moon. I, that was the best way to go to bed at like 3 a.m. was watching Putin intervene directly on the psychopaths. And, um, yeah, he's ruffled a lot of feathers in the course of doing this this wonderful speech. And I thought today that would be the, the, the main springboard that would drive a lot of today's presentation. Did Absolutely. you guys get a chance to watch uh, Putin in uh, in action at, at Valdai? Yeah, I, I, I caught most of it. You know, some of the things I did miss, but what a speech it was. He called out Western. He called out the West for what it is. Mm -hmm. them, you know, it, it, it was incredible to call it. You know, he called it monstrous and it is monstrous. It is duplicitous. It is hypocritical. You know, oh, yeah. and, and he, you know, the energy policy, the things that they're doing, these are all, you know, it's amazing. The West is run by idiot children, right, who literally ruin and mess up everything and then blame somebody else for it. Oh, absolutely. And I, I liked his little shot at the uh, the the egotistical grandiosity of those who climb, felt like they climbed up the Mount Olympus during the uh, the end of history period. He's like, and, and, you know, he's making a direct reference to Zeus and the immortals of ancient Athens which was the polemic, the source of the polemic of Aeschylus uh, when he wrote things like Prometheus Bound to get across that this was the insanity of the the ruling families, the ruling oligarchs who tried to project an image of immutability. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, people who are part of the Davos Club, the golden collar, the golden collar class. As, I like to uh, call them the urine colored class. The urine colored class. Yes, <laughs> yes. They, uh, but these guys really do want to beat uh, their mortality, you know, like this is at the root of their religion of transhumanism, which people are starting to get a sense of this evil thing, which 
you know, says that, you know, human beings are going to merge with machines and all of our minds are going to be like uploaded into clouds by 2050, says Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. And I mean, no, they, these guys not. are just really afraid of death. They're like, they're underdeveloped emotional uh, people. Who, yes. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're coming up with these schemes and theories of one world government, transhumanism, all this stuff. Because they're just really afraid of dealing with the fact that they were not made this way. When they were babies, they were made for a very different type of, of identity than the one that their culture that they were born into, uh, you know, crafted for them <laughs> to basically shape a sociopathic worldview that was obsessed with maintaining structures of power and slavery over the majority of the people. So, you know, there's there's a clash of paradigms. And, and Putin really did a good job in the, the, the Valdai presentation at just contrasting these two different worldviews because he made the point, you know, that the, uh, the, the, the uh, hieroglyph in China for crisis, and, and he made the point that we're in a systemic crisis that is full spectrum, nothing is untouched, is also opportunity. Um, that's how he began his speech, and he got across very well. And I've got a few slides, actually, I was going to share with uh, some excerpts from his speech of the two different destinies that are at hand right now that we could choose to go to. Here, let me just do a little screen share. Go for it. Um, yeah, it'll take me a second. I'm almost a little bit slow on the uh, the gun here. Window. There we go. Um. All right, here we are. Yeah, I, I, I even gave it a little title. I was a bit bored this morning, so I was like, okay, let's not <laughs> not getting played. Putin schools the Western revolution and reason how to use your reason. Um, and I don't think anybody caught this. I, as far as I know, I haven't seen anybody who caught this, but Putin is hilarious. He's a funny guy and he's deadpan dry humor. And uh, the thing right near the beginning of his speech that really caught me was where he's talking about the crisis of COVID and, and how, you know, we had hoped that this would bring the world together. But as we've seen, it's just caused massive uh, splintering divisiveness. Uh, but then he makes this like Jonathan Swift would be happy watching this. The, this, the British satirist from the 17th yeah. century. Yeah. Um, who made polemics on like, you know, different recipes for eating babies because the British Empire was like so good at at killing people. And he was he didn't want to be didactic about it, but he's like, OK, <laughs> let's just put this to the extreme and celebrate it and and make people feel kind of dirty. Sure. Um, so anyway, Putin starts and he says the coronavirus pandemic has clearly shown that the international order is structured around nation states. And this is where he's attacking the idea of one world government versus globalism. nation states. Yeah, globalism. By the way, recent developments have shown that global digital platforms, with all their might, which we could see from the internal political processes in the United <laughs> States, have failed to usurp political or state functions. These attempts proved ephemeral. The U.S. authorities, as I said, have immediately put the owners of these platforms in their place, which is exactly what is being done in Europe. If you just look at the size of the fines imposed on them and the demonopolization measures being taken, you you are aware of that. <laughs> I love this. I don't think anybody really caught what he was doing there. <laughs> oh, the shade is incredible, man. I, I mean, it literally, he just literally pissed on the entire idea of a, of a, of a one-world government. I mean, if this is a world government, where's the global response? No, every, it was every state, every country for itself. Yeah, to the point where and, you had and, India saying, "Hey, stop withholding uh, vaccines from us and give us the raw materials for the." Everybody was in a scramble for themselves. Yeah, and and I mean, did did any of these nation states, of the U.S. or Europe, actually break up the monopolies or put massive massive fines on big tech for what it did in the United States? 
no. <laughs> and everybody knows it, <laughs> that none of these things he said have happened, happened. Um, but it's a really great way of just throwing in a little he healthy cognitive dissonance just to get across who are the real power brokers of this post-nation-state post era. Because um, it isn't actually nation-states. And my friend John, um, who might be listening, even brought up the fact that, you know, when you compare some of the, the leading heads of state in Canada, like uh, Jolie, uh, I forgot her first name, is, is our foreign minister who's a bubblehead on the on part intellectually with Justin Trudeau, who <laughs> nobody respects. And if you imagine these guys next to the foreign ministers of Russia or of China. Matthew, Matthew, you, you said something about Justin Trudeau. Every middle-aged suburban white Canadian woman loves Justin Trudeau and respects him greatly. Yes, yes, that is probably partially true. Um, which is, that was his entire sales, like his whole selling point, right? Is just, you, you, you have the same name as your dad, who for some reason, uh, was the head of a cult, um, called Trudeau mania. It was like, kind of like the, the, the Beatles cult, but for, for politics. And there's this weird cult of personality that has like really indoctrinated a whole generation of baby boomers who think of him as the Canadian Lincoln who kept Canada whole from secessionist movements in the seventies and eighties. And uh, actually, the guy was a complete roundtable, roundtable movement, Fabian Society technocrat who was completely a part of this. The, he was aware of what he was a part of. OK, um, but his kid is at least Pierre Elliott Trudeau was had intelligence. Justin is a shadow of a shadow. As you said, he's like a pretty face who is there for a purpose and his his usefulness is wearing out. I would just add that because, yeah. I mean, there's. His entire world is controlled as everybody who is in the political, uh, I think, uh, public uh, spectrum in Canada. They're useful in the sense of being just projections of something, but there's nothing in them that makes personal decisions. They they don't have that within them. Um, it's a complete deep state system in Canada. Whereas in Russia, China, you actually have people who are who have risen because they have merit and competence right. to to make decisions and make policy. Um, all that to say, Mark Carney is being set up to take over from Justin over some scandal that's going to be created, something or other, sooner than later. And uh, then you're going to have a, a Freeland Carney, who are both trustees of the World Economic Forum combo. If this isn't stopped, I don't see any any resistance from within Canada these days. Uh, but that is where we're going right there to manage the deeper part of the storm that the world system is going into. Um, now that's a segue. But back to Putin being the man. Um, so let's just continue on here. He makes the point here that so only sovereign states. Oh, I, he, V or CJ, what do you guys want to read this stuff? Only sovereign states can effectively respond to the challenges of the times and the demands of the citizens. Accordingly, any effective international order should take into account the interests and the capabilities of the state and proceed on that basis and not try to prove that they should not exist. That's that's huge, man. Yeah. That's, that's huge, right? That that paragraph right there is huge. Yeah, you could take that to the bank. And I mean, you know, anybody who's who doesn't have their head, you know, deeply embedded up uh, the nether regions of their body uh, should be very, very aware of COP26, the Great Reset, World Economic Forum. All of these organizations are all part of the same apparatus that has been for decades working very hard to get the basically the world, but with a focus on the West, to deconstruct itself, to cannibalize itself so that we'd have nothing left but chaos and the begging of desperate people in the context of that chaos for world government and order 
uh, to bring us, you know, to help us feed our families from starvation. So people should know exactly. I mean, everybody in that room knew exactly what Putin was referring to. Furthermore, it is impossible to impose anything on anyone, be it in the principles underlying the socio-political structure or values that someone of their own reasons has called universal. <laughs> oh, that's another shot. After <laughs> all, it is clear that when a real crisis strikes, there is only one universal value left, and that is human life which each state decides for itself how best to protect based on its abilities, culture, and traditions. Oh, my God. That was a groin kick right to the Anglo-American West. Mm, and how. No, I mean, this is it was it, it's very, very powerful because in, in the Anglo-American rules based order, they don't value human life has no value. It has negative value. That's the whole point of cap and trade, reducing carbon footprints under enforceable carbon reduction measures that they want to bring out of COP26. Um, it's really the idea that human life is in itself a bad thing and that we have to create a new system of metrics and of values in the new system that will be brought online to replace the currently uh, you know, collapsing bubble order, which give monetary incentive to all forms of economic behavior, which reduce human life in defense of you know, the supposedly pristine equilibrium of homeostasis that they say Mother Nature uh, is governed by. And that every time human beings, you know, there's 8 billion of us, maybe there's going to be 9 billion of us. Um, every time we build a dam or we make things better for ourselves, we put nature ecosystems into disequilibrium and that these computer modelers running the COP26, running the IPCC, running the Great Reset, all say is unnatural. So human thought that our aspiration to make things better is what is unnatural. So Putin is the opposite. He's actually saying no. And you can get that from the economic policies uh, that he's he's committed to, his cooperation with China, his intervention mili interventions militarily to block regime change. Um, he's of the view that no, that's not, the, that's not how the universe works. <laughs> There's no evidence that anything is equilibrium. Nature is constantly evolving. We were once in an ice age. That was, that was you know, a really lifeless place a few hundred thousand years ago. Now, all of a sudden, it's blossoming where the, the Sahara was once green 5,000 years ago. Now it is a desert. Maybe we can turn that around and make it green again if we use technology. These are all things that, you know, the Malthusians running the Western ethic are saying is verboten. And Putin is saying, no, you need nation states to be preserved as sacred because each one is a reflection of the traditions, the values, the, the history of the people, but we have a common interest as people on the earth nonetheless. The empire says, no, multipolarity, that's bad. We need one pole to make one set of scientific decisions on who gets what in the, uh, the post-nation state era. The last thing here, not the last thing, but the one that really ruffled people's feathers. I've got a lot of friends, a lot of associates who freaked out over this because, you know, a, a, well, there's a lot of people who are rightfully anti-imperial. I think to be a, a, a reasonable human being, you have to be anti-imperial. Um, they're also thinking of themselves. There's a, a certain romanticism of what revolutionary, what is what does it mean to be revolutionary in our age? Um, and there's a romanticization of revolutionary activities in the in the modern era of last, let's say, 100, 100 or so years. And Putin just crashes that 
that romantic illusion where he says just over a century ago, Russia objectively faced serious problems. Um, Russia could have dealt with its problems gradually and in a civilized manner, but revolutionary shocks led to the collapse and dis disintegration of a great power. These examples from our history allow us to stay to say that revolutions are not a way to settle a crisis, but a way to aggravate it. No revolution was worth the damage it did to the human potential. And again, this freaked out a lot of people because they're like, well, how could he be an anti-imperialist? Doesn't that make you an anti-capitalist revolutionary? And this is, you know, people who have generally been fed heavy doses of, of Marxist literature over the years. Um, there's there's something about world history that's being missed. And there's something about how Putin understands world history that they don't understand. Because, yes, Putin is a revolutionary. He is anti-imperialist. It is not a paradox that he is coming out saying what he is saying. But to understand that, I want to have a few slides just to give people a bit of an insight, some elementary lessons in some of the dynamics that Putin is touching upon, okay? So I'm just going to take uh, five or six slides here, show some images, and we're going to unpack also a few other things that Putin said in his speech. But first, it, it really, you got to have a bit of a foundation here. So what was going on in this period, in the, in the period of 1890 to 1905? Because 1905 was the first revolutionary movement. It was sort of like the practice run of the Bolshevik Revolution of, of 1917. Um, that ultimately overturned the Romanov dynasty and created a new type of um, Soviet system. So what was going on in 19, in 1890? I've shown this image so many times, but I want people to really internalize this map from 1890, uh, the Cosmopolitan Railway, uh, which was a book published by the former governor of Colorado, uh, William Gilpin. He was also Abraham Lincoln's personal bodyguard. He was uh, one of the leading champions of the transcontinental railway in America to, to unite over the over the continent, over the land, eat one seacoast to the next or one ocean to the next, um, all the way going back to 1840s. This thing was ultimately built by Lincoln starting in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, this was, again, Gilpin was behind this thing in so many ways from the get-go all the way till his death in 1893. And he was part of an international array of of statesmen around the world, both in the United States, as well as in France, as well as in Russia, as well as in Japan and China and even South America, who are all organizing for a new type of system of sovereign nation states cooperating on large scale economic development under a community of win-win cooperation. That was where society was creatively evolving in a natural way, according to natural law at the end of the 19th century, while the British Empire, which was a tiny little... So island that had been already taken over for a couple of hundred years by private central banking and a very, very nefarious cultish Freemasonic order that operated through intelligence agencies that had been going on now in Britain <laughs> for well over 200 years at this point. That was on the on the, the the decline big time. The world was waking up to the nature of this evil beast of this oligarchy, and they were going instead for this other type of system. I'm going to say something about that. But in Gilpin's book, he describes, and what you're seeing there are rail rail development corridors stretching through the Bering Strait, connecting all the continents of the world, right? Um, you can get this book on archive.org, and it's it's not a bad read. Um, some, yeah, anyway, some some regressive words that are not politically correct, but overall, you got to keep, anyway, I'll, that's another thing. <laughs> so um, Gilpin says, it is a simple and plain proposition that Russia and the United States, each having broad uninhabited areas and limited 
limitless, undeveloped resources would buy the expenditure of two or three hundred million apiece for a highway of the nations through their now waste places add a hundredfold to their wealth and power and influence. Nations which can spend in war their thousands of lives, the lives of the best and bravest of their sons and citizens can surely afford a little of their surplus wealth and energy for such a work as this. And again, he's advocating Hamiltonian credit, national banking, protectionism. That's Gilpin's whole life is devoted to that. And he talks about that in his book. The second point, just to get across his, his philosophical conception of the type of world that he knows can be brought, that is our destiny into being. Um, the cosmopolitan railway will make the whole world one community. It will reduce the separate nations to families of our great nation. From extended intercommunication will arise a wider intercourse of human ideas. And as a result, logical and philosophical reciprocities, which will become the germs for innumerable new developments for in the track of intercommunication, enterprise, and invention, invariably follow, and whatever facilitates one stimulates every other agency of progress. Is that not beautiful? Yeah. So that's that's what Gilpin was saying the world could look like and, and would be the effect of this type of development. Now, starting in 1890, the leading figures who had gained ascendancy um, under Tsar Alexander II. At this time, it was Ar Tsar Alexander III, who was still alive, had not yet been assassinated. Um, we're initiating this program in Russia to connect, using the American model, rail from coast to coast, from St. Petersburg all the way down to Vladivostok, and even with, with connections moving into China. Originally, there was going to be a much broader array of networks of rail in China. Um, so what you see the figure on the upper right is Sergei Vita. He uh, was the finance minister and foreign minister from 1892 uh, or 1892 until 1903. He oversaw this whole thing. Um, so transport minister and finance minister, not foreign minister, sorry. Um, he worked very closely with people like Otto von Bismarck of Germany, the foreign minister there, who is very much aware. He's a friend of, of Lincoln, a friend of America, and also very aware of British intrigue. He worked with Gabriel Hanateau, the foreign minister of France, under Sadi Carnot, the president, who was also assassinated in 1895, um, to create ententes and alliances with France around building protectionism. So the, the use of not British free trade, not laissez-faire, but protectionism, state state-driven credit for large-scale investments into these sorts of projects, industrial development, so that you could get rid of the poverty that was necessary for the boiling, the, the pressure cooker of class struggle. That thing that Marx said is the immutable law of, of nations, of people forever, uh, is the suppression of the weak by a master, you know, rich class. That was being resolved in a way that did not involve violent revolution, but rather the uplifting of everybody through big projects. That was what Henry C. Carey, whose works were being translated into Russian massively, as well as Frederick List, an, another American system economist. Their works were highly, highly read across the Russian intelligentsia at this time. And they were all advocating this idea of a harmony that you could have not an antagonism of the, the, the agriculture industry, of the entrepreneurs, of the laborers. You could have a harmony of all interests as you make life better for everybody. Um, and you're never going to have perfect equilibrium or equality in that mathematical sense. That's a, that's a chimera. It's never going to happen. Um, but you can have improvement, qualitative improvement that is ongoing. 
that is the way to get out of the class struggle problem. So Vita is leading this fight. He's reorganizing the banking system. He is doing battle with anarchists uh, being sponsored by the Russian secret police, the Okhrana, that was spawned by the Russian Holy Brotherhood, a Russian sort of feudal oligarchical secret society on the one hand, which is sponsoring these, these chaos movements. They're very, this group, groups like this are very embedded with British intelligence. And on the other hand, he's actually doing battle as well with the old reactionary conservatives who want to go back to the days before Alexander the Second, the Tsar, freed the serfs in 1860. So there's groups that want to go back to the feudal Dark Age view and, and the, actual, the other groups who are largely all being coordinated by the same people when you get into it uh, are utilizing basically color revolutionary tactics to take disenchanted, abused people and using and use them as battering hammers uh, against the nation state itself, which is largely what Putin is, is warning about in his Valdai speech. This is not a new technique that came out of Georgia, Ukraine in the last 20 years. This is something that has been refined since the days of the French Revolution that overthrew the positive potential of what the American Revolution in France could have been. Um, another thing I, there's two quotes here, just to get into, again, like, like, um, Gilpin, Vita talked of rail, not as being just infrastructure or a way to make money or something like that. He said, the railroad is like a leaven, which creates a cultural fermentation among the population. Even if it passed through an absolutely wild people along the way, it would raise them in a short time to the level requisite for its operation. So to have rail and industries, you have to have a cultured, intelligent people. You need engineers. Um, that would happen quickly. And another quote that he did in 1890 is faced by a serious shortage of locomotives. I invented and applied the traffic system, which had long been in practice in the United States and which is now known as the American system. So this is not me just making up a word. This is something that Vita himself utilized as an understood term. Um, and again, that character below Vita is a scientist named Dmitry Mendeleev, the guy who discovered the, the principle organizing the periodic table of elements or Mendeleev's table, which it should right. be called. Um, he wasn't just a scientist. The man was a patriot who worked super closely with Vita. And he was even the head of the Committee on the Protective Tariff in Russia. He went to the United States to Philadelphia in, eight, in 1876 and studied the American system and brought it back with a team of other Russian delegates. Um, that's Mendeleev. I mean, and, and his discovery, just like Benjamin Franklin in America, his scientific discoveries were always motivated by an idea of transforming, creating essentially a, a political economic culture in alignment with the laws of discoverable nature. There were two sides, moral and scientific. There were two sides of the same coin in Benjamin Franklin's mind, as well as in um, Mendeleev's mind, as well as in Madame Curie's mind for that matter too. That's another story. So just a quick little thing here. History's derailed. So we have in 1895, things are moving ahead really well. We have the Russo-China Bank, uh, a new bank set up to fund big projects. We have the Chinese Eastern Railway as an outbranch of the, um, of the that was going to connect to the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, and this involved both U.S. and French cooperation under people like McKinley and McKinley's vice president, both of whom were assassinated, one by poisoning, one by an anarchist bullet. Um, Alexander III, also anarchist bullet, uh, or bomb actually killed him in 1894. Um, 
You had the Boxer Rebellion for two or even three years, which was sort of a backlash from the uh, humiliation of the Opium Wars and the, uh, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom Rebellion, the civil war in China that was being run by Jesuits and uh, British intelligence-connected mercenaries yep. um, running out of Protestant uh, churches <laughs> in uh, China. If you wanted to understand why China is a little bit paranoid about um, religious organizations operating uh, by foreign financing inside of their country. Th thank the Jesuits for that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a whole story unto itself. But that was something that was a, 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 tr a sad thing that happened. Some A lot of people were killed, but a lot more Chinese were killed than foreigners. It was an attack, a sort of a backlash against foreigners and a back against Christianity uh, in at least a, a certain form it took in China. Um, but the the backlash against that was the total destruction of uh, not only the rail projects that Vita and his colleagues in China were working to build, but also China, massive concessions. So China had already been annihilated under the, after the Second Opium War, under the under the the uh, London HSBC, under the 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 feeding them of drugs to keep them subdued. Um, more countries uh, basically jumped on board and took possession of big chunks of China, uh, France and, and Japan and Germany and even Russia got into it a little bit because, again, Vita is fighting imperialist expansionists inside of Russia, too. He's he's sort of a one-man army. Um, and then right after this, you have the, uh, the Japanese go on a full frontal attack against Russia, and this causes the a two-year Russo-Japanese war that annihilates the Russian military. It, it annihilates them financially. There's up to 50,000 Russian troops that find themselves in Japanese POW prisons for many, many years. Um, it's a total humiliating embarrassment, and uh, there's a whole story there. But, and then after this, you know, this is a period of, again, positive and negative potential. The, the Trans-Siberian Railway is completed in 1905, and this is also the same moment that the first Russian Revolution is launched under Trotsky and his uh, Menshevik and other pre-Bolshevik uh, networks that just creates big destabilization. Vita is now fired and Russia go, goes into a new pathway of towards increasing hell. The Balkan Wars erupt, creating massive instab instab instability on Russia's underbelly that is tied to the Ottoman Empire and the Young Turk movement that really do a, a nefarious clampdown on all sorts of ethnic minor minorities. This creates certain backlashes. Um, and then this st sets the, the destabilization in place for the bullet. Again, another black hand Serbian bullet that's run by British intelligence that kills a disposable Archduke Ferdinand and a series of secret treaties are activated that put the world onto a new path of slaughter, meat grinder slaughter for four years of, of total unnecessary war. Yep. Um, so again, Putin is attacking something here about something that went wrong that he says could have been resolved in a much cleaner way without chaos. Um, there's just three figures. There's a lot of work that's been written. I'm going to, I'm going to be publishing a paper on this in a few days, um, uh, two papers actually um, that go through this in greater detail, but just to be quick here, Jacob Schiff is a New York based wall street banker tied to the round table movement that had just come online um, he is a part of the Federal Reserve directorship that had just created a, its own coup d'etat, or that would, I mean, that's a 1913 coup d'etat financially in the United States to create a private central bank for the first time in, that's not beholden to the national interest, but rather to an international uh, trust of private bankers. So Jacob Schiff is a guy 
who plays a key role in this, he is awarded in 1905 a Jap from the Japanese emperor himself a medal of honor. Why? Because he provided a $200 million loan for the, the Japanese to, to fight their war with Russia. The British Empire built the ships, provide, provided money and logistical support as well. Yep. And the British Empire... Um, uh, the British emperor was convinced that, you know, these two island nations of Britain and Japan were destined to rule the world together. But this is shift, right? $200 million to bust up uh, Russia militarily. And then he, bra he, his grandson, John Schiff, brags to the New York Journal that his father had given $20 million for the triumph of communism in Russia. There's a lot of evidence that have been brought to the surface over the years that Schiff was a primary financial backer of um, the Russian Revolution, both in 1905 as well as in 1917. Um, I'd additionally add uh, Max Vorberg in Europe, as well as uh, Paul Vorberg, who was another member of the Federal Reserve Board uh, who took control, right. um, also was a major financier behind the Bolsheviks and the, the Russian revolutionaries. William Boyce Thompson is another director of the Federal Reserve Board, who at that time is assigned as the ambassador, essentially he's the unofficial ambassador of the USA to Russia in St. Petersburg, where he is heading the Red Cross. That is not, <laughs> and I don't think it ever has really played a, or an actually neutral uh, role in anything. We found them already uh, supplying money to jihadi terrorists in Syria. <laughs> um, we found... And back then in 1905, or this is actually later on, uh, William Boyce Thompson directly sponsored a million dollars to the Bolsheviks, another uh, million dollars for international Bolshevik uh, movements in Italy, in Germany, in uh, in Hungary. And a, a person named Arsene Gulovich, who was on the ground in, uh, in Russia at the time of the revolution in 1917, became a historian, did extensive work, published a book. In 1962, where he wrote, there's a small excerpt saying, in private interviews, I have been told that over 21 million rubles were spent by Lord Alfred Milner in financing the Russian Revolution. The mm -hmm. financier just mentioned was by no means al alone among the British to support the Russian Revolution with large financial donations. Just a few of the key players of the revolution. Uh, in the middle, Trotsky, uh, uh, Bukharin, um, his close colleague um, on the upper left, a younger Stalin on the bottom left, uh, Lenin. Uh, Matt, Matt, real quick, uh, yeah. the two hundred million that was loaned out by Schiff, right? From yeah. Jacob Schiff. For people that, uh, if you're in the wanting to know exactly what that is today, folks, that that, that is old, that's like six billion dollars of that's Easily. today's money. Six Easily. billion. That's a yeah. lot of friggin' cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's unimaginable in those days. I mean, that's yeah. that's so yeah, that's so much money. Uh, so these are the guys who are often uh, celebrated. I would just add one little thing here about the guy on the upper right-hand side. Uh, this guy is Alexander Helfand, a.k.a. Parvis was a name he had taken on later on. Parvis worked very closely with uh, Trotsky in uh, as leaders of the 1905 practice-run revolution. Um, immediately afterwards, when a lot Trotsky was, was imprisoned uh, for a period, Parvis escaped imprisonment and went immediately to Turkey and became a key controller of something called the uh, the Young Turk movement, um, just to get a sense of what were what was controlling the world um, above these these contrived color revolutions. It's useful to look at some of this guy's actions because I mean the Young Turks movement not only was key in creating 
an like an overthrow of the Ottoman Empire. At the yep. time, the Ottomans were trying to work to modernize themselves to not collapse by working with Bismarck's Germany in building the Berlin to Baghdad railway. That was seen as as something that had to be destroyed in the mind of the British Empire. So what he does is just completely wild. And he works with the founder of the Young Turks, who's this guy, Emmanuel Caruso, um, Carasso, who's an Italian Freemason. An Italian runs the Young Turk movement. Um, these guys work together, um, providing weapons, food, money, propaganda, you name it, to make this thing happen. Once the, the Ottoman Empire is overthrown, Immediately, the entire navy of the Ottoman Empire is given to the control of a British naval admiral, right? Uh, Ernst Cassell, the guy who is the banker for the royal family for Edward VII, who is in the middle of orchestrating orchestrating what would later become World War One. This guy's private banker is brought into Turkey to, to found the first bank, National Bank of Turkey, and run it and manage it. And British intelligence operatives from the British Foreign Office are brought in to advise every ministry of the uh, the new Turkish government. So what else is this guy doing? What else this guy is this guy Parvis doing? He's going on and he's becoming a founding member of the, um, after the Bolshevik revolution, of the pan-European movement of Count uh, Kulergi von Kudenhoff. And the, this is a Habsburg creation. It, it's designed explicitly to create a benign fascist global superstate, first in Europe and then globally. Um, obviously, very much in alignment with the type of global revolution that Trotsky and Bukharin are committed to, which both Lenin, well, Lenin, he's, he's a mixed bag, but Stalin says, no way. We want it socialism in one country, and that's the cause of their complete irreparable split. But if you look again, this this pan-European movement, this it, it has other members like Benito Mussolini, the fascist, um, at the, who started as a socialist. All right, keep that in mind. It's a game. Um, there's there's a people are being played according to a formula of of reactionary extremes. Keep them in a state of chaos and then induce massive radical conservatism, fascism to be the solution and do and and keep people in that state of of polarizations. Right. Uh, Adam Smith or or Karl Marx, pick your extreme. Um, Friedrich von Hayek or uh, or John Maynard Keynes, pick your extreme. State or individual liberty, right? It's bullshit. It's it's all fraud. If you look at FDR, you look at Lincoln, you look at Vita, you look at any of these guys, they're doing the opposite. They're not bending to extremes. They're introducing a higher principle. Um, so who else um, is a member of the pan-European movement? Uh, you have Hjalmar Schacht, Hitler's the, the Nazi finance minister. Um, you have uh, Karl Herrhausen. Uh, Herrhausen? Uh, the guy who basically is the ghostwriter for uh, Mein Kampf and who's uh, Hitler's geopolitician. Um, you, you, the, the coterie of nasties who are members of this international organization, which later on is run by Otto von Habsburg himself for 30 years. Uh, this thing co-create... Habsburg, while he's doing this, creates the Dignita Humanitae Institute, which is run out of a gigantic monastery, 800 years old in, in Italy, which wants to unite the right against Confucianism, against Islam. It's basically a, a way to repackage um, a clash of civilizations, chaos theory. And who do they pick as their front man to, to manage this thing? Go to their website. <laughs> You'll be surprised. Um, I'll just tell you. Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon. And that's just a quick uh, image of some of these characters I just went through. Okay, so this brings us back here to, 
I think I've, I've made the case, we're running out of time, but I've made the case here that Putin is not uh, bullshitting. He under He is a revolutionary and he is, it's not a paradox to see him attack the Bolshevik revolution or color revolutions more generally. He understands how it works, but it goes deeper. There's two more parts of Putin's speech that I want to, Hey, V, you want to read this uh, quote by Putin uh, where it gets into cultural warfare? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. The advocates of the social progress. Hold on. The, the logo's cutting off mm. the uh, part of it. Hold on. The advocates of the social. Excuse me. Could you back up out of it? There you go. There you go. The advocates of the social progress believe that they're introducing humanity to some kind of new and better consciousness. Oh, my God. This is beautiful. Godspeed. Hoist the flags, as we say. Go right ahead. The only thing I want to say now is that their prescriptions are not new at all. It may come as a surprise to some people, but revolution, the Bolsheviks, relying on the... I'm sorry. uh, It may come to a surprise to some people, but but Russia has has been there already. There you go. After the 1917 revolution, the Bolsheviks, relying on the dogmas of Marx and Engels, also said that they would change the existing ways and customs, and not just political and economic ones, but the very notion of human morality and the foundations of a healthy society. The destruction of age-old values, religion, and relations between people, up to and including the total rejection of family. We have that too encouragement to inform on loved ones. All of this was proclaimed progress, and by the way, was widely supported around the world back then and was quite fashionable, same as today. By the way, the Bolsheviks were absolutely intolerant of opinions other than theirs. Dude, that's that's incredible. Yeah, I found that this was like the heart and soul of a big chunk of, of this speech <clears throat> because... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's really the cultural fight is everything. People get a little bit caught up sometimes in the 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 uh, imagery of politics and geopolitics and economics, and and you know they'll comment at length, but they forget that all of these things are a means to an end. The end is either are we going to have a society founded upon a culture that puts human beings and the divinity of human beings in the center, and all concepts of planning of value of everything else emanate from that conception of a human being made in the image of a living God, a creative God, that's a, not an impotent dead God that created the universe and that can never intervene again? Or are we gonna have a society founded upon the image of man and man made in the image of like a machine, you know, that, as a calculating processor with no soul, a blank slate to be written upon and programmed by a master elite of programmers? Right. Is that going to be the type of conception where human beings are just this very unlovable un- where principles don't exist, basically? Right. Discoveries don't exist because in a computer, all you have are the ones and the zeros and the programming that you input into it. You can't get qualitative. A computer is not going to discover what or AI is not going to discover what are the under the undiscovered processes inside of the sun or, you know, inside of other uh, galaxies that are shaping the weather systems. Uh, the 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 migration patterns, the electromagnetic fields on the Earth and on other planets. It won't happen. That requires still creative human minds that go beyond logic, that use logic, but that are not bounded by the shackles of pure mathematical symbolism or logic as such. That's the nature of the fight. So people like the cultural 
revolutionaries. And again, when you if you look at Karl Radek, you look at uh, Trotsky, uh, the, these guys gave were, had primarily the idea of cultural revolution firmly on their mind for their global revolution that they wanted to bring to being. And that's why also Lenin dif deferred from Trotsky on that point. Lenin, at, during, during the revolution, when it was a success and they took control, and later on the Romanovs were killed, um, the question was, does Russia stay in World War I? And Lenin said, no, let's get the hell out of World War I. It's not, a, it's, there's no reason to be here. Trotsky and Bukharin were of the view that, no, we should not only stay in the war, but use that as a platform to get a pan-European revolution and then a pan-global revolution. Um, that's always what the, the agenda was. And that's where one of the key points of break was located. Um, Putin goes a little bit now into the present to get across that what happened in this Bolshevik period of of cultural revisionism of deconstructionism of the past to, to recreate human beings from scratch like a blank slate um, culturally is being replicated today and uh, this is my last Putin quote um, you want to read this one yeah uh, hey Siege can you hear me oh perfect good thanks man good uh, looking at what is happening in a number of Western countries we're amazed to see the domestic practices which we fortunately have left, I hope, in the distant past. The fight for equality and against discrimination has turned into aggressive dogmatism, bordering on absurdity when the works of the great authors of the past, such as Shakespeare, are no longer taught at schools or universities because their ideas are believed to be backward. The classics are declared backward and ignorant of the importances of gender or race. In Hollywood, memos are distributed about proper storytelling and how many characters of what color or gender should be in a movie. This is even worse than the agitprop department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Holy cow. Yeah. No, he's calling out. Like, you've you got a guy who we're being told is, is the big bad communist dictator of Russia trying to overthrow the Western neoliberal world order of Western values, schooling us on how we have just allowed a Bolshevik <laughs> a Bolshevik cultural revolution to Correct. over control of our Western society. And uh, straight on, the irony is loud and brilliant. Uh, I like it. I like that kind of irony. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this is this is really it. I mean, he's just calling out the absurdity that we're losing a complete sense. We're allowing kids to decide what gender they're going to be, you know, and not even letting them decide. We're encouraging them, as we've seen from the Tavistock Institute in London, um, actually encouraging kids at the age of eight, nine years old to become the opposite sex. Um, and then, I mean, it's I don't have to say anything about this. Everyone knows that this is insane. Of course. Oh, this is the last thing here. OK, um, uh, the Frankfurt School. Frankfurt School, because where did the Frankfurt School come from? In 1922, Trotsky and Radek, his one of his key collaborators, organized a conference on global cultural revolution. Among the participants are Georg, Georg, George, George Lucas. Georg Lucas. George Lucas. Yeah. George, George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, George yeah. Lucas, yeah. Lucas. And Willy Munzenberg. Um, Munzenberg and Lukacs are both key parts of the Communist International. Uh, Lukacs becomes one of the key guys running the revolution in Hungary, which has like 130 days of uh, of success under this guy, this fellow Bela Kun, and he's the commissar for culture and education. And Lukacs puts into play the entire uh, 
reform of education, sex ed for kids, all sorts of things um, that ultimately morally, uh, you know, offend too much the uh, the sensibilities of the Hungarians and the uh, the revolution is, is, is quickly un undone. But all that to say, quickly, he's brought in as a key participant of this conference on the global cultural revolution. He goes on to take this project now and bring it back to Germany, where an organization is set up in 1923 called the Institute for Social Research under his lead, as well as Willy Munzenberg. Uh, many other participants from that, uh, you know, Moscow Conference on the Cultural Revolution participate in the founding of the Institute of Social Research. This becomes known as the Frankfurt School. Um, when things get a little bit hot with uh, with Adolf Hitler, they move their headquarters to the USA and they set up primarily in Columbia University, but also in Hollywood. So people like um, Max Horkheimer, um, Theodore Adorno go to Hollywood and they, they work very closely with Aldous Huxley, who also comes to Hollywood in the 1930s and becomes the highest paid Hollywood scriptwriter. Um, other people are uh, include uh, Alexander Korda, who's making a lot of H.G. Wells' movies in, or books into movies um, in order to engage in essentially, you know, uh, psyops, uh, predictive programming for the people um, to basically adapt to controlled narratives of science fiction, of what the future, what dystopic realities await you in the future that you cannot fight against or change, but simply you must adapt to when you see them coming. That was the role of these and guys. Well, one of the things with the Frankfurt School, when they yeah. when they set up in Columbia, they also made, a, they befriended a certain person there by the name of Howard Scott. I didn't know that. that. Oh, Who's yeah. That? Howard Scott is the mentor of a certain Zygbinu Brzezinski. Oh, that's fun. Howard Scott is the father of technocracy. That's grand. That's grand. Well, you see, that's the thing. Like, the techno technocracy thing has an associated ne necessary culture that it needs to bring about uh, in order to to get people to accept that type of world where you you get rid of nation states you get rid of your traditions of patriotism of love of religion of your family res respect for your children and grandparents that to to do that requires a totally certain cultural matrix that was not active in the days that they were living in in the 1920s um, which is why the the Bolsheviks in Italy or in Germany or in Hungary failed. They didn't. They were not able to take hold. Uh, or in in the United States, there was a big Bolshevik uh, movement here too, right? Again, funded by the same financiers who were in the midst of preparing to take Huge. control of the world. Huge. <laughs> I love the quote you put here from Lukacs and they lose all faith in a higher power in their soul. They at that point, then you could get a, a people who will beg for. They won't even appreciate what liberty is because they don't believe that freedom exists um, because freedom to do what, right? Freedom to, <laughs> um, they will beg for a higher power, a, a technocratic regime to come in to restore order in some way and give them comfort. In the case of Huxley, it was through drugs and pleasure for the elites and also different types of drugs for the, the slave class. Um, Munzenberg who's later killed by um, by Stalin, because Munzenberg is a part of the Trotskyite networks that were deeply embedded as a fifth column within Russia. Trotsky was kicked out of Russia in 1927, um, but his network remained behind, including uh, Bakunin and many others who had tried on several occasions to work with, neo with Nazis in Ukraine, Nazis in Germany, Japanese fascists, British fascists, to take control, to kill Stalin and take control 
And this was outlined in the many, many books by Grover Fur, who is an incredibly in interesting researcher. I'm, I'm just going through his books now, uh, now and I'm going to do a review on that. But um, yeah, these these trials that Stalin waged, there there were undoubtedly some some victims in this. There might have, I'm sure there were excesses, but these there was a lot of evidence that these were real conspiracies, Nazi conspiracies, with the British to overthrow Stalin, who wanted again socialism in one country. Stalin had an orientation towards technological progress, the idea of the human individual vol. Uh, the human individual at the center instead of an idea of a technocratic regime. Um, that was a big point of conflict between Trotsky and Stalin as well. And, uh, and anyway, like, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, Munzenberg was a part of that, that conspiracy and Munzenberg was rightfully executed as was Bakunin, as were many other Trotskyites. Um, Munzenberg says at early on in the twenties, we must organize the intellectuals and use them to make Western civilization stink. Only then, after they have corrupted all its values and made life impossible, can we impose the dict dictatorship on the proletariat. Um, I think that that's, I, I got a, as an indent, I don't know if that, I didn't get the source for that, okay? I found this one in an article online. That second one, I'm not sure. I got to verify that where that comes from. The first one definitely was said by Lukacs. I think Munzberg did say the second one. All of these guys, including people like, uh, geez, who do, we, we got people like, um, um, Eric Fromm, Kurt Lewin, Paul Lazarfeld. Paul Lazarfeld becomes the guy who invents and, and do, does the anthropological work on social networking that's in, integrated into the logarithms of um, the internet, of things like Facebook. Earlier on, it was MySpace. Uh, all of the social networking things that we have are all utilizing the research of Paul Lazarfeld, who ran the Radio Research Project. You have Kurt Lewin, who runs the National Training Labs for Tavistock as well. So there's overlap with Tavistock. Um, who's a member of this thing, Herbert Marcuse, uh, Wilhelm Reich uh, is a part of this thing. There's so many of the people who found things like critical theory, critical race theory, criticize everything that's part of the established order, good and bad alike, it's all bad. Um, this is what gave birth to the, the disaster of the French Revolution, right? The French revolutionaries ended up being turned into a color revolution. That's why the French Revolution was not an American revolution. It was a failure. Why? because you had a bunch of rabble-rousing Freemasonic British paid operatives like Robespierre um, who took the masses who were poor and impoverished, didn't right, and just turned them into a battering ram against the entire establishment, good and bad alike, so that Benjamin Franklin's allies, many of whom were among the nobility, they were good people like Sergei Vita, um, they, were, they were all decapitated in the course of the Jacobin color revolution. And nothing was left but a vacuum that could only be filled by a fascist, a.k.a. Napoleon, for 20 years. Um, so this is the sort of thing. The authoritarian personality this is what people like uh, Adorno is crafting. The, anybody who says that they know what is true, a Martin Luther King Jr., uh, John F. Kennedy, who speaks with authority in their voice, who believes in gender, for example, that there is such a thing as male and female, that is an authoritarian, proto-fascist personality type that... Uh, they say is is there under behind the eyeballs of whoever speaks that way. Political correctness, the need to self-censor yourself so that you don't offend, that emotions are what is real, not not truth. Um, all of these things emerge out of the Frankfurt School. This is what is embedded by people like uh, um, Dewey, John Dewey, 
who uh, is working very closely with these groups in setting up things like the uh, the National Education Association, where he applies many of these reforms um, to basically dumb down the Western, the, the victims, the students who will go through and be processed, mostly baby boomers coming out of World War II into the 50s, 60s. They are being processed by this. Um, one of the leading guys, um, who is Lukacs, founds Eros and Civilization. This is the, the manifesto for the counterculture movement of the 60s. The idea of make love, not war, comes out of Eros and Civilization. Um, it, the idea, and the idea of Lukacs was to amplify the erotic aspect, to, to take, to take uh, sex out of love, out of the idea of the family structure, and just make that a liberating thing that would somehow make the world better by us all going into drug-induced orgies in the 60s to fight the Vietnam War. Um, these, these were architects who created an artificial counterculture movement. And again, when you go back to Trotsky, when you go back to what he was a part of, Bukharin, what was the pan-European movement? What were these, these international financiers all about? It was always about creating maximum chaos, infuse ideologies. In the case of the Frankfurt School, it was infusing Darwinism with Marxism, with Freud, and merging that to create a new synthetic ideological grouping that could then induce society to destroy itself. Um, that's what Trotsky was about when he was, he was the science czar of Russia. He ran national science policy of Russia for many years in the 20s. And his whole assignment was to integrate dialectic materialism with Darwinistic uh, views of evolution, merge them into one thing, because they're kind of not really, they don't go together, um, force them together and to create a new religion ultimately that became transhumanism. So all that to say, and this is why, again, I just said one last thing. The reason why all of these Trotskyites in America, like, you know, James Burnham, the guy who was the OSS officer, former Trotskyite personal assistant. Uh, my wife, Cynthia Chung, wrote enormously about James Burnham in her last couple of articles. They're just great. Um, maybe I'll send them to you as a link you could share with your network. Yeah. Burnham was a guy who went from being Trotsky's disciple and secretary in the United States when Trotsky was in exile to becoming in 1940, he, he renounced his Trotskyite affinities and said instead, no, it's Bertrand Russell. He writes a book to Trotsky before Trotsky is killed saying, no, I don't believe in, in, uh, in this view anymore. I'm now a fan of Bertrand Russell and the Principia Mathematica, which Bertrand, Bertrand Russell wrote in 1913. He said, that's the new way to be. And in his managerial revolution and on the Machiavellis, he basically outlines the need to work with the Nazis in 1942, when America is at war with the Nazis. This OSS guy is writing how America must coexist with the Nazis and with the Italian fascists to co-control a new world order of a managerial class at the top yeah. and a dumbed down um, feudal order on the bottom. They, he, he is the founding father of the neoconservative movement. Correct. Her Hitchens directly calls him that and you know people who work with him are people like uh oh geez i can't even remember but basically all of the neocons that take power in the cold war that really take power after the after the death of bobby kennedy yeah or carter all of them are now brought in and they're all former trotskyites yep why cheney wolfowitz um wolf the guy who runs the uh the rand corporation wolf setter is, is yep, the guy wolf who runs, uh, richard pearl who who trains him another one um, yeah, uh, they're, Cyrus they're Vance, yeah. James Baker, all of them, all of them, those exactly. Kingmakers, right there, Van Cyrus Vance, James Baker, those are the kingmakers, man. Yeah, like how do these guys become the how did these Trotsky atheists uh, become 
these revolutionaries become the right-wing fanatics, the, the pre-millennialist or post-millennialist right-wing Christian fundy end-timers. Uh, how did that happen? It's it's a fraud. It's not real. They, the, the idea was just to create ideologies that would justify permanent war, permanent revolution, to, right. to push total chaos that would then come to some omega point, bifurcation point, singularity, whatever you want to mystically call it, at which point a rapture of chaos could occur at which, and thus a new order could be established run by, you know, these sociopathic uh, inbred jackasses. So all that to say, this is a, uh, it's not incongruent. It's not inconsistent with Trotsky. It's they're, they're all parts of the same ultimate thing. There's also groups in the, the Vatican under, you know, Tayal de Chaldeng, which I'm also writing about who's integrating, uh, you know, Christianity, uh, Darwinism with Christianity and infusing that into the church structures that become Vatican II. And that's a whole other conversation. But uh, yeah, it's all part of the same thing. Very well said. Matthew Errett, the man, the myth, the legend himself. Thank you so much, brother, for coming on board. And uh, amazing speech by Vladimir Putin. Uh, there's been some uh, questions in the, uh, uh, the, the comment section uh, on, the, on the chat. People are asking uh, why the Russians have signed up to the World Economic Forum's uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution stuff. Uh, I can tell you, you want to comment on that? I also... No, no, I, I've been talking my, yeah, yeah go respond. Uh, throughout the decades, you've seen Russians as well as China, uh, you know, Chinese governments and Russian governments also uh, have signed up to various, various global uh, confabs. Okay. That does not mean that they are a part of it. Okay. When, when the rubber meets the road, they don't show up or they are absolutely resistant to it. It's just the thing you do. There's a certain point when you get to the hierarchical uh, um, uh, echelons of, of either politics or economics, you're all rubbing elbows with the same people. It's a, you can't avoid them. It's not a, a tremendous amount of people at the top. Okay, So uh, that's the reason why. It, it, look, at, look at the people that are implementing what the World Economic Forum is doing. It's the West. That's all it is. And all the other countries that are sold into that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Matthew, we, we probably easily could have went two hours on, on this as well. I mean, it was there, there was a lot there to chew through. But um, I also found it very interesting in terms of, you know, what Putin had to say specifically about about capitalism. I think that was, mm. you know, that mm -hmm. was very important. Um, also, you know, when he closed it out talking about the individual, you know, tying it together yeah. in regards to society and, you know, keeping the minds of the individual, which I think has been missed, you know, and, and especially when we're living this ideas of a collective society. It, the thing that was amazing to me as well is that all this was unscripted. Like I, he did not know any of the questions. These, these ideas that Putin so through were just completely his beliefs, his, his ideas. And through this, you know, a lot of important ideas being discussed questions. And what I found was just to me was such a, a huge statement in regards to the United States was that the one person, or maybe there was two people from the United States who were allowed to ask a question. Okay. And the question that was posed to Putin from this person from America was about Trump running in 24. I'm like, that just there just shows the stupidity of the West right there. Like, like Putin gives a shit about Trump, right? I mean, <laughs> not you could ask him about like a magnitude of things and he asked about Trump in 2024. I mean, the level yeah. of stupidity there. Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, I absolutely. And, uh, no, I, I, I wish I I'd pulled out those those quotes and people should just listen to his speech. You can go to the Russian website. And maybe you guys could uh, put the link on, on, on the description of this video. But yeah, he spends a lot of time pointing out the, the principle of the individual, the divine, the divineness inside of the individual um, as as the core 
you know, of what an economy should be and, and must be. It's it's uh, it's really important to, to really internalize that because that is the source of the fight internationally. Why should we why are we not overpopulated? Why is it wrong to promote depopulation of people? You know, many people who are good people, they can't refute that very well. They're they're very bad at it. They're like, well, I guess we kind of are overpopulated, but couldn't we depopulate under a cleaner, more humanitarian way than, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, with what the great, great resetters are going for maybe? Um, it's like, no, you human beings are actually good. There's no limits to growth intrinsically. There are limits that are relative, but they're not absolute. And that's, remember last week, we we read some of the quotes from Putin's advisor, uh, Sergei Glazyev. Yeah. And that was what Glazyev in his interview was was honing in on, that that ideas run the world and ideas are not material. Ideas are transmaterial, but they they transform the material world when they're good in in a better way, or when they're bad ideas, they transform the material world in a bad way. They can reduce, you know, we could make actions that reduce our food production by by maybe putting value on biofuels that has the U.S. burning forty percent of its corn production. You could do that, and that increases the uh, the constraints on what we can sustain for human life. Or you could do the opposite and green a desert. And increase food food abundance, and it you know expand your population. But then, what is that the reason why you do it? No, we're not monkeys. Right. You know, you don't just do it because you want more monkeys. You do it because every human soul and mind is potentially a genius. And if you give every kid the opportunity and the hope and the reasonable hope to you know develop their full faculties and not want to escape reality with drugs and video games and Netflix, which is you know part of it is pessimism. We just reality is not a very inspiring thing to want to be a part of. So you, there's a lot of reasons to want to escape it into a Brave New World Soma Fest or Feelies. Um, now, at that point, every mind can make discoveries and the universe is a very big place. Why are we not already talking about terraforming, you know, Mars and, and going to other Europa and Io and, and exploring them and learning how the biosystems evolved on these other planets and maybe harness that knowledge in a way that allows us to um, you know, explore the universe and build civilizations even beyond the earth eventually. Yep. Why the fuck not? You know, it's because exactly. pessimistic. We're, there's a religion of pessimism because the Frankfurt School was successful, right, at getting us to have embrace cynic, cynical despair and, and pessimism. Yep. Modern art, abstract art, atonal music, all this crap that we're told we have to respect because, you know, paintings from Jackson Pollock sell for uh, $400 million to hedge well, fund. Well, what about uh, the paintings from Hunter Biden? He's Picasso. Resurrected. <laughs> exactly. Sign of a dark oh age. That's the sign that the Frank Matthew, we have, a, we have a super chat from Moondragon from Sweden, representing Sweden. He has asked Matthew what he thinks of, the, of Serbia joining the EU. Of Serbia joining the EU? Well, the EU is, is still... I mean, if, if the EU was not antagonistic to the existence of sovereign nation states. Okay. But unfortunately it's entire foundational structure. is rooted in the pan-European movement of Count Kalergi von Kudenhof and, uh, and Otto von Habsburg. The entire thing is, is designed to destroy the means of sovereign nation states to support their own people by having the right to emit credit beyond, I think it's like 3% debt. You can't legally create more than 3% of your GDP as debt, as some arbitrary rule which basically cuts off any nation state from being able to have national banking or develop their economy in defense of the people in opposition to the financiers who want to kill their people. So in that sense, it's sort of walking into a cage. It's not a good idea. 
Well said. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much, guys, for uh, joining us today. And, uh, Matthew, uh, thank you again. Um, folks, we'll be back uh, next week uh, on The Great Game. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, like, comment, share. Most importantly, go check out Matthew's website. If you haven't done so already, go to the subscribe, the, the what's it called, Substack, and make sure you subscribe over there, right at the Substack. And check out CanadianPatriot.org, as well as the RisingTideFoundation.net. It is a plethora of information, a vertible library of Alexandria that is online for all things geostrategic and geopolitical. Go check it out. Once again, thank you all for listening in. And CJ, take it away.